I told Brent, I, I mean, I told Matt, I said, I've um, been working on this benediction for quite a while. And he says, wow, that'll give us something to look forward to. And I said, come on, you're kidding. They look forward to it every Sunday. <laughs> so nothing new about a benediction. I hope that you're not feeling too sluggish after a Thanksgiving and uh, that somehow uh, we can maybe gather our senses here this morning and, and focus together on God's Word. Uh, this comes as an assignment. Um, I asked Matt, out of just courtesy, uh, if there's something particular I should address this morning as we would be gathering uh, and continuing with the, the study in the, in the Gospel of Mark. I thought he'd just give me free reins and let me preach on something that I wanted to preach on. But uh, he assigned me to the passage in Mark that we're looking at, and that's Mark four twenty-six through 29. Well, you're looking that up, and we'll read it together. I'll read it, and you can follow along. Um, this is just a reminder that I think what Pastor Matt's been trying to do uh, as we've been going through the study, and particularly over the last couple of weeks, is to really encourage us to come to grips with the importance of God's Word in our life and the fact that it is something that, as it takes hold of us, it really has a transforming power. It, it should change us to the point that as we become more focused on what God's Word is trying to say, it reveals more of who God is and specifically who Christ is and what that means to us as believers to the point that we would even take on more and more and more of the likeness of Jesus himself. So when we think of the word uh, this morning, not just what we're studying, but as it is to be a part of our daily life, think of it as something that is to to contribute to us to become more and more like Jesus. Let's look at this passage together in Mark 4, 26-29. And he said, and that's a reference to Jesus who was speaking, and he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Will you join with me as we pray together and and again asking the Lord to let his word uh, penetrate our minds and our hearts. Lord, this is another attempt of sowing seed and that we are the soil to receive what you would share with us today. We have been reminded of how sometimes we are hard and callous toward the word. Lord, I pray this morning that we can be fertile and open and receptive to what you want us to say. And as we were reminded last week, that truly we may have ears to hear and give us also the heart to understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This parable, which maybe your Bible itself has identified with some of those little black letters above the verses that we just read, is referred to as the parable of the growing seed. 
Uh, I've found it in a couple of my Bibles. Maybe you have it in yours as well. And I, I really believe that it's a continuation of a parable that we talked about a couple of weeks ago as Matt led us through the understanding the parable of the sower. It's appearing in the same chapter, chapter 4 of Mark. And not only is it the parable of the sower that we looked at, but we also had the benefit of Jesus explaining it to his disciples what it all meant. Now, there is a significant difference between this parable and the parable of the sower, and as is, Jesus didn't explain this one. So I think he is trusting us to come to our best understanding of what is to be said as he would, we would allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us through his word. But there are some things that are common. First off, there is the sowing. And, and that's not needle and thread. That's casting seed. And, and the seed falls on ground. As we remember from the parable of the sower, there were different types of soil. And so it falls on the ground. This particular parable, the parable of the growing seed, accents what happens when that seed falls on fertile soil or good soil, uh, good ground. And we want to look at that because in so many ways it represents what is supposed to happen in the life of one who is to hear the word, accept the word, and allow that word to take root in their life. So there's this common thread that's shared throughout what we have studied thus far in the Gospel of Mark about the sowing of seed, the reception of the soil, and what comes of that in terms of fruitfulness at the same time. Okay, this parable is not talking about what Jesus has done. This is talking about what the man has done. And he's only done three things. He has sowed the seed. He has waited for it to grow. And he harvested it. That's it. Cast the seed on the ground, sat around and waited for it to grow, and then took in the bountiful harvest. That's all the man did. The seed falls upon ground, and then things begin to happen. Now, for days, there's no evidence of anything happening. Matter of fact, we get the picture quite clearly. The man just seemingly, seemingly just goes about his daily business. He sleeps during the night. He gets up during the day. He sleeps during the night. He gets up during the day. Nothing is reported about anything happening to this seed. Until after a while, there are sprouts, and they appear. They weren't distinguishable right away, but eventually they came up, and, and the farmer, the one who sowed, realizes that something is beginning to happen. When I read this particular passage of Scripture, I thought about our arrival here in Charlotte, North Carolina. You need to understand that where we lived, we had built a home, and, and I like to work outside, and I... I, I I'm a gardener, I guess, not so much vegetables as I am azaleas and camellias and, and all that kind of stuff. And I take great pride in my lawn. And when we caught here, there's this, there's this North Carolina red clay that is not receptive to anything. And for the first four years that we were living in our house, I was mowing a, a dust bowl. I would come in as red as the ground after mowing after a while, and I had enough of it. And so I contacted your friend and mine, Mark Jameson. 
and ask Mark to come and fix the problem for me. And Mark got his equipment out, and he, he prepared the soil. He aerated it, he turned it over a little bit, and then he cast the seed, and then he casted the fertilizer, and he gave me instructions to water it, which I did. Now, knowing this isn't much better than the sandy soil of Florida, so I knew it was going to take some time, but I'm very impatient. So I figured that it should be coming up soon, but it didn't, and I was getting discouraged until after a while the blade appears. Have you ever gone down the highway here? I think it's um, Arlington Church Road, and there's a big, big, big cornfield out there. And it's just as brown as can be, and, and, and it stays brown for a long time. And all of a sudden, it begins to turn green because the farmer has planted a ground cover. And then he mows that down, and it's brown again, and you're thinking, what in the world? And then he plants again, and it's corn or some other type of grain. I'm always amazed of, of just the, 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 the significant um, stark, stark difference between the brown, barren soil and then that green, tender root or plant coming up. Well, this is basically what happened. The, the farmer cast a seed. Nothing happened. And then after a while, the blade comes up. And then we read that there is a stalk, and, and then it produces ears, and the ears reveal the, the ripe kernel. How do you explain anything like that? The, the, the scripture says, says he knows not how. He can't explain it. Well, I went to my computer and looked up planting seeds in soil. And there is a science that specifically studies planting seeds in soil, and it's called geoponics. Anyone ever heard of geoponics? I feel so good. I'm in great company. I didn't know what it was either. But this is the process of a plant growing in soil. And it's explained with such terms as inflorescence, micronutrients, photosynthesis, pollination, propagation, scarification, and stratification. Now, does that help you to understand any better about what it means for a plant to grow in the ground? If you were disciplined in, in the study, you probably thought this makes sense, and I know exactly what he's saying, but believe me, I don't know what I'm saying. And, 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 it, and it all fits. It makes good sense. But I'm telling you this. If all these things work as a scientist predicts that they will work, the end results is not guaranteed. Because there's one thing that's necessary to make all these things to, to come together, and that's the divine creator of them all. It is God that's behind it. And that's what's happening in the ground. You can't see what's taking place. It's God doing his thing. People call it Mother Nature. I call it the creator. I could plant a garden, and, uh, and I could prepare the soil, and I could be very careful to plant the seeds as the little packet from, from um, the greenhouse says, you know, so many inches apart, so inches deep, and all that kind of stuff. I can go so far to continue to till the soil to keep it loose so that, that, the, that the little seed would have a chance to, to root. I could weed. I could water. I could fertilize. I could get out my, my pesticides and fight off the bugs. 
I could do all kinds of things to, to protect that little shoot that begins to come up. But no matter how careful I am, there is no guarantee that it's going to bear fruit. I can, I can give all my attention to generate the conditions that are right for that thing to do what it's supposed to do. But I don't control the sun. I have no power over the climate. I can't do anything about pollination. <laughs> I have to leave that to the bees or the wind or God. And that's what this farmer has done. That's what this parable is saying. The sea has been sown. And you wait to see what's going to happen. And it's God that's going to bring forth fruit. Put that in the, in the sense of a human being now. That word penetrates the heart. It finds root there. It begins to germinate. People around them, that person who has received the word, may not recognize it. They may not see any visible change in that person who is letting this word begin to work on them. It may go for days, weeks, even months or years before there's any evidence that that word has really taken hold of the life of that person. I'm telling you, this whole thing of sharing God's word is going to be accomplished in God's time and in God's way. You can't force it to happen. It, it takes me back to, again, I think a situation in the New Testament that kind of deals with this. There was great success in the growing of the early church. The church was exploding. And there were some prominent leaders in the church at that time. In the book of Corinthians, it specifically mentions Apollos, Cephas, or Peter, and Paul. And because of the success of the church, and because of some of the people in that church, they began to focus on what was making this church grow. And they were beginning to identify the people that they wanted to follow because of the growth. And Paul, Paul just kind of reels it in and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. We read in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul speaking, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. It's God's work in the life of the church. It's God's work in your and my, yours and my life as the Holy Spirit or the Word takes hold of us. It's God's work in the little kernel that's in the, in the soil of the earth. It's God's work. His time, His way. No, not how. Just can't figure it out. There's nothing wrong with that. We don't need to know everything about God and how he does it. Matter of fact, I think that this is kind of healthy. There is a concern of mine, and this is kind of a side point, I think, to the parable itself, is that there are many of us, and even myself included, that I just want to know what God's doing and what's behind it. I want to figure him out. And guaranteed, I'm not going to. <laughs> but I'm telling you, if we think we can figure God out, first off, we're making a mistake. And then making the assumption, the, the extreme assumption, assumption that we could, what we have done is just denied God. Because if we think we understand the mysteries of God, then we have made God like ourselves. And that won't happen. I know each and every one of us in this sanctuary this morning are, have those moments of just wanting to ask God why or how. 
or what for. And we want to say, God, explain it to me. And we may not get the answer. At least, not now. <laughs> and I've come to grips with this. And it, it really, it, it, I think, came about as I ran across a statement that was made by a man named Dennis Covington. And I've latched on to this because I think in some ways it kind of helps me over these hurdles when I'm trying to figure out the mysteries of God. He writes this. Mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. Don't you just love that? The mystery of God just, just reminds us he's bigger and bigger and bigger than anything that we can ever comprehend. We are not going to contain God, even as, as smart as we think we might be, or as, as calculating we might be in explaining what he does and why he does it. We won't contain him. When I was thinking about this particular point, I, was, I just began thumbing through the scriptures as quickly as my memory would allow me, and it's not working as good as it used to. But I tried to land on those passages of scripture that reminded me of the mysteries of God. And I, I landed on, saw, or on Job uh, 38 and 39. We're not going to read the two chapters together. But this is an interesting dialogue. As you know the story of Job, you know, he's in a whole lot of trouble. He's lost everything. I mean, absolutely everything. And he's a, he's a physical wreck. His wife's ready to run off and, and leave him. And he, he's lost his kid. He's lost everything. And it just seems hopeless. And he's got three friends that come up and try to tell him what he did wrong. And we know that he's a godly man. And that wasn't what the problem was at all. And, and, and Job gets a little defensive himself. You know, he, he wants his time with God. He wants to explain himself to God. And after, after this encounter with his friends, and Job may be still sulking on top of the, uh, of the ash heap outside the city, we read in verse 38, God speaks to Job. And he says, 38.4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the measurements? Surely you know. A little jesting there. Slip over to verse 18. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this, where is the way of the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory? Explain that one, Job. Look down on verses 25 and 26. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain? And a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land that where no man is, on a desert where there is no man at all. Uh, let's see if we got any more here. Let's look at 31 and uh, through 33. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? We're talking about the galaxy. We're talking about the heavens. He goes on to say, "Can you lead forth? The, well, it's can you lead forth the constellations in their season, or can you guide the bear with his children?" Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish the rule of earth? Come on, Job. <laughs> Figure me out. That's the dimensions of God. That's how big he is. So, back to the parable. The man sows. 
And then he went, went for a few days and nights, and then the seed begins to germinate, and it bears fruit eventually. What's more, identifying the seed as the word, the good soil, the one who would receive the word. The, parallel points out, the parable points out that the word takes root, and there's a season, season for growth, and at times it may not even be visible to those around the one who has received the word. A couple points here. You know, I, I am always amazed by someone who has just received Christ as their Savior, and there is an element of joy and excitement in their lives, and I want some of that. I want to, I want to recover that. I, I want to experience again what was, was a fresh experience in my life at one time. And then, and then, you know, I, I want to kind of channel that guy. I, I want to kind of tune him in to, you know, just kind of cool your jets a little bit. You know, you got to be in control. And, and then I, I just want to make certain he kind of fits in with the rest of us, you know, so he doesn't stand out and, and embarrass us. I think there's a real risk in this is that when there is evidence of something happening in somebody's life because of the cause of Christ, we have, we have two responses. Either we want to make certain it's controlled, or we are so taken back by it that all we can do is say, Hallelujah! <laughs> and I think the second one's more appropriate myself, even though I fall more into the trap of the first sometimes. And I also want to tell you this, the second lesson. It does take time. I don't know how many of you have been praying for lost loved ones or people that are friends that are lost and haven't found Christ yet. But from personal experiences, there are people that we've encountered that we've been praying for for two, three years before there's any evidence at all that they would be receptive to the gospel. It takes time. Time. There was a young boy named Pat. Jan and I worked at the Avon Christian Village, and for a period of our, our, our service there, we were in child care. We were, I was a child care director and part-time house parent. Jan was a house parent, and we would end up taking care of kids on occasion. And, and there was this one little guy, his name was Pat. And Pat was a stem winder. Boy, he was. He'd get you going. And... Uh, he, he wasn't a bad kid. He was just always in trouble, that's all. I guess that's not bad. Um, but uh, he, he, he was a part of a community, a Christian community. Uh, we would have the disciplines in, in the cottage just like we did in our home. We would have prayer meal. We would have Bible reading occasionally. We would, we would take them to church. Uh, they were involved by a community of believers, so they were continually bombarded by witnesses of Christ. Nothing, nothing that would represent someone pushing themselves on, on these kids, but just the obvious presence of people who love Jesus. Pat got to the age when he could leave the village. It was his choice to make, and he didn't waste a minute. He was gone the next day. He was out of there. And we had all kinds of concerns about Pat and what his future would be. He ended up in Alabama. And he, he got landed a job with a guy who had owned a, a Mercedes-Benz dealership. Good mechanic. Pat turned out to be a real good mechanic. Also turned out to be a good car thief. And he stole the car from his boss, Christian man. Took him back in, gave him a second chance. Through the process, 
Pat kind of got his life together, settled down, got married, raised a family, and found himself in a church and found Christ. I was, I was in my office one day, I got this phone call. I said, someone's down here in the heritage room to see you. And this, this was the room where they had the collection of all the pictures of the history of the village. And I walked down there and there was this young man. I didn't recognize him. He says, hey, Mr. Thomas, I'm, I'm Pat. And so he said, Pat, I knew who he was right away. I'm going to tell you. For the years that we had Pat in that cottage and in that community, there was no evidence of growth in his life. And there was a season when he left the village that obviously he still didn't respond to the germination of that seed that had been planted. But there was a turning point, and it was the working of the Holy Spirit and the timing of God that allowed that guy to find out who Jesus is. And he gave his life to Christ, happily married, working in a church, serving in a church. So don't put it aside as nothing's happening because it's not happening fast enough. Finally, verse 29. I, you know, I read this and I thought, how am I going to handle this verse? Because immediately I had a vision of my own and thinking it might be yours as well. <clears throat> There's this picture. It reads, first off, but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And the only thing I could think of was the, green rip, green, the grim reaper. You know, like, yeah. You know, the plant has had its life cycle. It was planted, it grew, it bare fruit, gone. Just gone. Taken out. Now, I, that didn't fit in, in my understanding of what happens to a believer. You know, that if I mature my faith, I'm, am I gone right as soon as I mature my faith? I hope not. That's why I'm slowing down in this maturing process. You know, I want to hang around for a while. But this isn't what Mark is saying. Mark is saying that the harvest took place so that what was brought in would benefit the sower. Now think about this for a minute. I'm a farmer and I plant a field of corn. And harvest time is coming. And so I cut that corn down. And I've got the fruit. What am I going to do with that fruit or the kernel? I'm going to do lots of things. First off, I'm going to sell some of it. And I'll make some money. Next thing I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to make some ethanol on it and drive my car. The other thing I'm going to do, I'm going to feed my family. Another thing I'm going to do, I'm, 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 going to, I'm going to save some of it. And I'm going to plant another field. And another field. And another field. And that harvest continues to grow and grow and grow year after year. That's the fullness of the harvest. That's what the harvest is all about. That we reap the benefits of what has been planted. I personally reap the benefits as the Spirit of God has planted His Word in me. And hopefully the people around me will also reap some benefits by the fact that I am letting that, that Word germinate. I'm letting that Word grow. I'm letting that Word produce fruit in my life. So that I can pollinate other people who might be in the growing process. I can fertilize other people. I can contribute to their nutrition as they're trying to grow as Christians. That's the fruit of the harvest. And then finally, yes, we will someday be a part of the kingdom of God. Today, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. There is a day coming when we'll be eternal residents of the kingdom of God. And it all begins by allowing that word to be planted in our heart so that it can begin to take its effect on us and eventually bear evidence that it's got a hold of us to the point that we produce fruit so that it can benefit those around us, all for the cause of Christ.
That's what I got out of this parable. Now, the other part of the understanding is up to you. And let the Holy Spirit work with you as you work through his word. Thank you.